Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. My friend, who is the leader of suing the government, she said, tell, told me the message to you all is that as a victim of a nuclear power station's disaster, we don't want to be the perpetrator of further contaminating the Pacific Ocean, and we seek for your solidarity. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge the elders past and present, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. This week on the program, we speak with Umi Asaka and Tommy or Tomoki Fukui about the planned release of 1.3 million tonnes of water contaminated with radiation from the Fukushima Daiichi power plant into the ocean. The plant is owned by TEPCO, that's the Tokyo Electric Power Company, and the release of this water would continue for 30 years. Shortly after I spoke with Umi and Tommy for this program, the news was released that the plan to dump the contaminated water has been put on hold, for now, with the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida advising a delegation from the Pacific Islands Forum that Japan will not discharge the treated nuclear wastewater until such time that it is verifiably safe to do so. While it's great that the plan has been paused for now, this statement still leaves the release of wastewater open in future, so please stay with us as Umi and Tommy unpack the issues around the radioactive wastewater at the Fukushima Daiichi power plant. Thank you for having me this morning. My name is Umi Asaka. I'm originally from Japan. I moved to Aotearoa, New Zealand when I was 15, when the nuclear power station's accident happened in Japan, so I'm an evacuee of the nuclear power station, and I am a disability researcher in Aotearoa at the moment. Thanks so much for joining us on the program today. And Tommy? Yeah, um, so my name's uh, Tommy, or my formal name is Tomoki Fukui. Um, my pronouns are they, them. Um, I'm an agender flux um, Nikkei anthropologist uh, who's doing research on the, the nuclear disaster. Um, from uh, Columbia University on occupied Lenape lands. So yeah, it's really wonderful to be here today. Thank you so much for joining us as well. To begin with, for listeners who might not be aware of the full situation, I thought it might be useful to start with some historical background to the current situation at the Fukushima Daiichi power plant. Sure. So Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant was reaching its life extension which is 40 years when the big earthquake happened in March 11, 2011. So that's 12 years ago. And prior to the earthquake, there was a government report of what could happen if there is a big earthquake or tsunami in that area, but those risks were not responded. So the earthquake and tsunami itself is a natural disaster, but the nuclear power station's accident is a human disaster because there was a lack of response of what they could have done prior to that. And since then, the government has consistently campaigned for its safety while ignoring the concerns and actual harm that people are experiencing. And as part of that, they have lifted the restriction in all the areas in Fukushima for people to return 
But in reality, many people still can't return to that area because the contamination is still very high. And as a context, I, my mom is from Fukushima. And so my family lives in an area that is um, 80 kilometers away from that nuclear power station. And people are still living there, but closer to that power plant within the 20 kilometer. That area still looks exactly the same from 12 years ago. The houses are still left as it was destroyed by tsunami and earthquake. And Fukushima just is a very beautiful place. And I love the place. And it has been so different since the accident. But the government wants to pretend that it's normal. I think um, just kind of adding on to what Amy uh, was saying, the spread of contamination is something that's also impacted people across eastern Japan. And, you know, the scientists have been able to track the presence of radioactive contamination in the Pacific already as well. Um, so it it was very much um, a, a global event, but one that was the kind of burden of it was very heavily placed on uh, residents from especially like coastal Fukushima and central Fukushima. Um, and I wanted to explain a little bit about some of the kind of like historical background for like why there's nuclear power in Japan to begin with. Um, but, you know, usually when we talk about nuclear power in Japan, we tend to date it to the atomic bombings, um, in 1945 and the kind of Japanese government, um, or I guess the American military occupations, uh, uh, censoring of uh, research and stuff on the atomic bomb survivors of the Hibaksha. Um, but another way to kind of trace some of the genealogy of an interest in nuclear energy in Japan is to um, their nuclear weapons program. They were interested in developing nuclear weapons as well during World War II. Um, and actually, there was a, a brief period where uh, women and children in Fukushima Prefecture, as it happened, uh, were mining for uranium uh, in order to kind of uh, create nuclear weapons um, that could be on par with, you know, Germany or the United States. Um, and then after World War II, um, there was a way that the kind of Japanese state uh, refashioned itself under the protection of American nuclear imperialism. And so that kind of provided some of the context for um, the, the rise of commercial nuclear power energy production um, in Japan, despite the history of um, having experienced atomic bombings. Um, and another thing that I thought, you know, might be kind of uh, relevant is the kind of broader history of nuclear imperialism in the Pacific. So the uranium that was used at Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant came from the Olympic Dam and Ranger mines, or at least a portion of it did. And so there were kind of immediate ways that anti-nuclear organizers kind of drew those connections very early on in the nuclear disaster. And then in terms of the dumping of the wastewater, um, Tale Mangioni has uh, talked about how um, TEPCO, actually the same company, attempted to dump about 10,000 drums of nuclear waste in the Northern Marianas in 1979. Um, and during that time, there was actually a lot of transnational organizing between um, 
people in Japan and then people in the Pacific to um, successfully prevent that from happening. Um, so there's a lot of uh, kind of different histories that are um, kind of alive and, and being kind of reworked out in this contemporary context. And for listeners who might not be aware, uh, local listeners, um, the Olympic Dam uranium mine is in South Australia and the Ranger uranium mine is in um, the Northern Territory. So to turn to the situation at the power plant itself, I understand that after the uh, tsunami flooded the plant, three reactors were flooded and uh, that caused, um, I mean, as a non-scientist, I'll just use the word a meltdown, as I understand it. And now what happens is to keep the um, the damaged parts of the power plant cool and prevent further um, serious issues, uh, water is used to flush through the ruins and keep further issues from happening. And that water is contaminated by radiation. And at the moment, it's been stored on site at the power plant. So What's being proposed now is that water will be released into the ocean. There's 1.3 million tonnes of radioactive wastewater, and um, that's been on the cards for a while now. But the process is scheduled to begin in March or April this year. And and that process will also continue for 30 years at least. So would either of you like to speak about sort of what is happening around that at the moment and where things are up to? Yes, sure. So um, the water actually... The wastewater comes from a lot of like really bad construction of nuclear power station. I recently learned that the water is not actually only produced because of cooling down the radioactive reactor, but when they build a nuclear power station, they dig through a stream, like the natural stream. And then because of that, there are a lot of like natural stream flew into the reactor. And there's still lots of water going to the reactor by, like, the, from a natural stream. So it's not because that they use the water to cool down the reactor, but it comes from the natural stream that flowed into the nuclear power station, which is also so sad that they constructed the nuclear power station in the area and damaged the water stream as to begin with. But so they are planning to discharge the water um, by tr- treating it through this thing called ABS treatment. And the typical claim that they remove 62 types of radiation from the water, but more than 80% of the contaminated water that they are planning to release exceeds the safety international safety level of radiation contamination. And the radiation that cannot be removed from the water includes tritium, which like ionizes with water and they can be very chemically active. So they can not only damage the DNA, but they can like go inside of the mitochondria and keep damaging the bodies that way. And other radiation that includes in the water is strontium-90, which is known to accumulate in the bones and has a half-time of 15,700 years, which is a very long time. So that this issue will continue for decades and centuries, and but they have done, um, they haven't done enough investigation of what the impacts would be, and the scientists Anjun 
Makhejani from the state. He's done um contract with the Tepusu Pacific Island Forum, and then they the data that was sent to them from Tepco, the company was very flawed, and they were they just didn't have enough information for them to really investigate the safety of the contaminated water. So there, there are so many fraud attached to this. Women on the Line. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You're hearing an interview with Umi Asaka and Tommy Fukui speaking about the plan to release water contaminated with radiation from the Fukushima Daiichi power plant into the ocean. Shortly after I spoke with Umi and Tommy for this conversation, news came through that this plan has been paused, and while this is positive, it's important to keep the pressure on about this issue until the plan is scrapped for good. This is Tommy continuing the conversation. I guess one thing that I would add is that TEPCO and the national government have been pushing to quote-unquote solve this issue of the groundwater leaking into, basically leaking through the site and coming into contact with radioactive debris and then becoming radioactive. And it keeps producing more and more water because they basically went against the I don't know, the, the local ecosystem in order to build the nuclear power plant by carving it so low into the ground just to save money um, that now it, they've tried through various methods to try to prevent the groundwater from seeping into the site, but it's kind of impossible because of just how they set it up didn't like make any sense to begin with. So they've been trying to say, you know, that we need a solution to this issue of kind of um, the production of so much radioactive water from this meltdown since since roughly like 2015, but they really became much more emphatic about it from like 2017, 2018, which is when they started having um, kind of public meetings or information session. And it was in 2018 that it was only because of a kind of uh, investigation by journalists that the public was even notified that Alps, which had been claiming to be able to remove kind of all radioactive isotopes besides tritium, uh, they found that in fact that was not happening, that was not the case. Um, And there were many other kinds of radioactive isotopes that were still contained in the wastewater. And even now with the kind of data that TEPCO has been taking, um, Dr. Arjun Makajani was kind of uh, very, was sure to kind of include that it's still not really clear, like in what quantities these other radioactive isotopes are in the water, like what are the concentrations, how effective is the system, just kind of like very basic things about the functionality of ALPS treatment have not been assessed but the government and TEPCO are kind of proceeding with um, their plans regardless. Yeah, so the ALPS, as both Umi and yourself has mentioned, is the Advanced Liquid Processing System. Um, and, yeah, I mean, what what is the sort of push from TEPCO to release this water now? Like, why are they so focused on doing this at the current time? I think that's a question that many people have, and it's actually like 
the official reason that they have given is that they're running out of space um, at the at Fukushima Daiichi nuclear site. So they're saying basically we don't have anywhere to kind of continue storing this water. And, you know, residents and evacuees and scientists and other people who have kind of participated in public commentary on the government's plans have kind of pointed out like alternative um, kind of storage solutions, the idea of using kind of really large, like much larger containers to store the contaminated water. They've kind of mapped out the actual space that's taken currently taken up by the storage water tanks. And, you know, there is still quite a bit of space available. So it doesn't seem like that is really the the main reason. It's just the official reason that's given um, that is then kind of reported in, in media and so on. And I guess what I could say is that one thing that's important to know is that the Ministry of Trade, Economy and Industry is the one that's been in charge of creating the, the policies around the management of this wastewater. So it's not just uh, TEPCO that is really invested in kind of re releasing the water into the sea. It's also uh, kind of national government bodies um, in Japan. And I guess it's also important to note that they've been pushing for this very strongly since 2018. And some anti-nuclear activists and community members feel that the Japanese government essentially took advantage of the opportunities presented by the COVID pandemic, you know, which made it much more difficult for public participation in uh, government decisions and kind of policymaking. Some people feel that the government just kind of took advantage of that in order to push this through while, while everyone was kind of um, had their hands full with the pandemic. Another thing just to notice is that from the very start of the nuclear meltdown, definitely within the first year and certainly even within the first six months, TEPCO and the Japanese government have kind of worked together very closely in order to create a decommissioning plan and a kind of nuclear management plan that sacrifices people's public health, it sacrifices ecological rights, uh, sacrifices people's rights to bodily autonomy for a style of nuclear management and radioactive management that really prioritizes um, kind of returning Japan to becoming a profitable economy. And so, you know, nuclear energy plays a really important role in that. Initially, the, the government was most concerned about a worry that foreign investors would stop investing in the Japanese economy because of rising energy costs due to nuclear power shutdowns. And so that's why they've been pushing really hard for restarting um, nuclear power plants and for kind of the quick uh, resolution to this nuclear disaster, even though we all know it's something that is going to continue for you know hundreds of thousands of years. So I think that we can definitely understand the decision to release the water as just an extension of that, like another example of that same logic, because it has consistently seemed to be the case that as far as the national government and TEPCO are concerned, it's, it's their timeline that matters the most and not public health or people's autonomy or the environment or, um, you know, the sovereignty of other nations um, in the Pacific, in this case.
Speaking of all of those uh, factors, um, both of you were part of the Nuclear Connections Across Oceania conference, which took place in November 2022. And out of that conference, I guess a statement was put out with some demands around what, what is happening here. Would, Umi, would you like to speak about the demands from the conference? Or? Yes, sure. So the conference was really amazing conference of like all the activists across the Pacific getting together. And one of the um, group that we that came out of the conference created a statement on the demand to stop the discharge of the radioactive contaminated water. And the first point of the statement is that we call on the TEPCO and the Japanese government to immediately end its plan to discharge radioactive wastewater from Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean. And second, we call on the New Zealand government to stay true to its commitment to a nuclear-free Pacific and to support other concerned Pacific governments by playing a leading role in taking a case to the International Tribunal for the role of the sea against Japan concerning the proposed radioactive release from TEPCO's Fukushima Daiichi. And third, we seek clarity from the Japanese government the International Atomic Energy Agency, Henry Puna, who is the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum Secretaries and the Pacific Ocean Commissioner and the Pacific Panel of the Independent Global Experts on the Nuclear Issue on the outcome of numerous meetings they've had about the radioactive wastewater discharge. And the fourth, we call for a transparent and accountable consultation process as called for by Japanese civil society groups, Pacific leaders and regional organizations. This consultation will be between Japanese government and its neighbors throughout the Pacific. This process must be directed by the impacted communities within Japan and throughout the Pacific to facilitate fair and open public deliberation and rigorous scientific debate. So these are the statements. And we have background information that support this statement, which is available on the website from the conference. And people can sign up to put their name forward to agree to that statement. And we really appreciate people sharing this statement with the people in your community. What kind of resistance or activism around this issue is taking place from a Japanese perspective? Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, really just like a huge outpouring of resistance across Japan, I would say. One of the kind of major civil society civics uh, groups that has been active on the wastewater issue has been the group Koreumi, uh, which stands for the Japanese um which translates to like, don't contaminate our ocean anymore. So they've been very active in kind of organizing transnational responses to the wastewater dumping and kind of working with environmental organizations across, across the kind of region, across the Pacific um, and Northeast Asia as well as connecting with other communities who have been uh, harmfully impacted by nuclear imperialism in the Pacific, specifically, as well as just in North America and, and in other places. 
Koreumi has called for a global day of action uh, that's going to be on April 13th, where they really just want to kind of show that there's a kind of transnational solidarity among people on this issue, you know, in terms of kind of taking action to protect the Pacific and just all the, like, it has so much uh, significance for so many different communities, right? Um, and then kind of in connection with that, there's a group um, kind of organizing out of um, California and the East Coast and in Turtle Island called Stop TEPCO. They've been doing some kind of consciousness raising and will probably be participating in the Global Day of Action. I also wanted to mention that kind of besides these like really kind of broader scale efforts, there's also been more local efforts as well. Fishing cooperatives have been very outspoken against the dumping of the wastewater. I believe it was the national government for TEPCO signed an agreement, like kind of made a, an agreement with them in 2015 that they would be consulted in the event of dumping any kind of radioactive water into the ocean and that their desires would be, you know, upheld uh, in that process. But that has been completely not. Uh, they haven't stood by their word on that at all. So fishing cooperatives kind of across northeastern Japan have been um, very opposed to this action. And I think municipalities across Fukushima Prefecture have also passed resolutions in opposition to it. And then I also wanted to note um, there's a group called Happy Island based out of kind of coastal Fukushima, Iwaki City. And uh, they have recently kind of noticed that the Japanese government is trying to put potentially contaminated marine products from the Fukushima coast into school lunches for children as a kind of public relations effort to um, normalize the dumping of radioactive water into the ocean. So they're kind of taking some efforts in opposition to that, and that comes out of the more kind of efforts that are connected to the anti-radiation movement, uh, which is very much led by uh, mothers who are especially concerned about how people who are more vulnerable to the impacts of, you know, radioactive exposure are being impacted by this. Um, so definitely a lot of widespread resistance and it is kind of happening at multiple scales. And on your last point, I noticed in um, the statement put out from the conference that we mentioned, they mentioned the gendered aspect of activism against this. And also, um, please excuse my pronunciation, but fuhyo uh, higai, which is, I suppose, a word for harmful rumors causing reputational economic damage. I mean, Umi, as someone who is, you know, an evacuee from Fukushima yourself, are you able to speak speak about this and how this plays out in this space? Yes, sure. That word itself is super harmful because it completely disregards people's concern and the real harm that people experience by just saying it's a harmful rumor because it's not just a rumor, it's the reality. But by using that word, it deliberately silenced the people who have the concern to speak up. And one of the really hard things that's happening is that people are being divided. And if people speak up, they feel unsafe or people have been... Yeah, there are lots of 
division between families and friends and communities because of how they um, respond to what had happened and the word has been used to target people who speak up to silence them and yeah it's really hard because it completely disregards people's concerns but I think Tommy has done lots of research in this area as well. But in terms of like my own experience, like I find it really hard to actually talk about this because of that word. And I don't want to put my family who lives in Fukushima in a bad position or like make them feel bad because they still live there. But the harm is actually there as well. And it's such a it's a cognitive dissonance to like the re- acknowledge the reality while having to continue your life in the space that's completely contaminated. And using that word is really effective because you can be like, oh, that's a harmful bloom or you don't have to actually worry about it. But actually, you do have to worry about it or look at the reality. So yeah, it's very that word has lots of damage attached to it. Yeah, I feel like me express just the violence of that word so well. I think a common phrase that you'll hear often is that it's not harmful rumor, it's an actual harm, jitsugai. Um, and I think that really speaks to the heart of the issue. One thing that I would connect historically is there's a way that this idea of harmful rumor kind of really kind of like turns the violence that's being perpetrated by the Japanese government and TEPCO on its head and it makes it seem like the people who are pointing it out are the ones who are being violent um so it's linked to you know there were some people especially kind of in the earlier years who like felt like they were the ones who were responsible for some of the harms that were being caused. There was like accusations that people who were speaking out about radiation contamination and exposure and like the public health issues with that. There was sometimes accusations that they were indirectly causing discrimination against people in Fukushima. So there's this really strange and um, disturbing way that the Japanese government has almost like appropriated the image of Hibaksha, but in order to do exactly the same thing that they did to atomic bomb survivors in terms of, you know, similarly gaslighting them about their experiences and kind of turning radiation into a a topic that you couldn't talk about openly. And that creates these very like deep silences, even in your most intimate relationships. I was going to add but that people have been silenced, but also there are a group of people who are suing the government and typical for the damage that they've created as well. And last year, the Tokyo District Court has made a judgment that the four people who are in charge of TEPCO at the time has the responsibility to pay back for the um, damage that they've caused. But the judgment has unfortunately been overturned this month, last month, that they are found to be innocent. But it's a continuing battle for us to make them realize the damage that they've done. 
we are sadly out of time today, but if listeners want to make themselves heard about this issue, which, you know, I've, I feel affects all of us in different ways, but yeah, what is the best thing for them to do in addition to sort of putting their name to this statement that's been released from the conference? Um, so the global action that Romy has talked about on the April 13th, it would be great if people could join that by maybe take, taking photos, say, making a sign and taking photos that they are in solidarity with us. And so any action that shows the solidarity would be the would be best for us if you could talk with your friends and family and your community about what's going on. And my friend who is the leader of suing the government, she said, tell, told me the message to you all is that as a victim of a nuclear power station's disaster, we don't want to be the perpetrator of further contaminating the Pacific Ocean. And we seek for your solidarity. So that would be the message I would like to leave. You were just listening to Umi Asaka and Tommy or Tomoki Fukui speaking about the planned release of 1.3 million tonnes of wastewater contaminated with radiation into the ocean from the Fukushima Daiichi power plant. Shortly after our conversation for today's program, the news came through that the plan has been paused for now, with the Japanese government saying it won't release the wastewater until it is verifiably safe to do so. To keep the pressure on about this issue until the plan is scrapped completely, visit nuclear-connections.mailchimpsites.com to add your name to the statement Umi read earlier in the program, and watch out for the International Day of Action coming up on April 13. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people. This program was produced in Nam, Melbourne, with the amazing support of 3CR staff. A big thank you to them. Women on the Line is broadcast across Australia on the community radio network, and we greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenonthelion at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 If you'd like more information about today's program or to listen to the show again, you can find what you need on the Women on the Line website, 3cr.org.au forward slash womenonthelion. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time.